0: we're continuing our series in the book of Micah, and Sam is going to come and talk to us, and in preparation for Sam coming and talking to us on it, John is going to come and read a couple of verses from the chapter for us.
1: Woe to those who devise wickedness. And work plans of evil in their bed. When the morning comes, they perform it because it is in their power of their hands. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising evil, from which you cannot remove your necks. And you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and wail a bitter lament and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people and how he removes it from me. Among our captors, he divides our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. And at the end of the chapter, God says, I will surely gather you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens up the breach will go before them, and they will break through and pass by the gate, go out by it. Their king will will pass on before them, with the Lord at their head.
2: Awesome. Good morning, everyone. We've got one of the chirpy bits of Micah where he prophesies against the people of Israel um, extensively this morning. Um, it's our fault for choosing a prophet, really, isn't it? But it's uh, just such an am- amazing passage that we're going to look at today. Um, <clears throat> However, just as John was reading that, um, I'm just a, I, I want to just clarify something that doesn't need clarifying but might need clarifying at the start, which is today we're looking at a scripture of prophecy against the people of Israel in ancient times, against the, uh, fundamentally the kingdoms uh, that were the Jewish people. And I'm just aware of how weird that is to talk on the day after an awful tragedy against the Jewish people happened um, in the States yesterday. We just need to acknowledge um, that the heart of this passage is not about condemning the people of Israel. And it's not about saying that they, they need to face judgment or anything like that. That's not what we're doing here today. What we're doing is reading a scripture um, from the Lord to his people that speaks to every one of our hearts and shows us how to walk in life and how to walk in love. Is that okay? So today we're not standing against a bunch of people. We're not we're, Particularly, we're not standing against the Jewish people or Israel today. We stand against the evil that... Um, strikes at the heart of those who seek peace um, and brings violence. Is that okay? Good. Just to clarify, I'm sure that didn't need saying, uh, but I just don't want to be... <laughs> it's just a weird, weird thing to be talking about the the morning after. Um, so, uh, last, last week, Nigel um, opened this uh, amazing book to us. We're going to l- be looking at the prophet Micah for a number of weeks, and he's going to walk us all the way into Advent, um, and basically up to Christmas, because Micah has a lot to say about the coming of the Messiah, and how exciting that's going to be, and what good news that is uh, for his people, and in fact, for the whole world. So, we're going to stay in Micah for a number of weeks. Um, Last week, Nigel began to speak on chapter one, and in chapter one, what happens is um, Micah kind of makes this blanket statement that this book is a book um, of judgment, basically for the, in this case, for the people of Israel, um, and how it's going to there's going to be this awful stuff that happens. They're going to go into exile. It's going to be awful. And the reason is they've turned against, they've turned their back on God. And while Micah chapter 1 is quite general in its accusations, Micah is going to get very specific here with the reasons that these people are not in God's good books at the moment. And he goes straight for the jugular in verse 1, doesn't he? He says this, um, "'Woe to those who pl- plan iniquity.'" Um, To those who plot evil in their beds. This is what we were just reading. At morning's light they carry it out, for it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud a man of his home, a fellow man of his inheritance. Now, interestingly, when Micah begins to speak against uh, the people for the sin that they've committed, the first thing that he goes for is this. It's the first thing that he goes for is this issue of what people do with power, of how those in power abuse those who aren't in power, abuse the weakest and the most vulnerable in society. And he does it by talking about uh, these people who apparently (laughs) don't have better things to do at night than to plan evil on their beds. And at morning's light, they carry it out for it's in their power to do it. They covet fields. Now, it's kind of an odd place to start, isn't it? Talking about like what's the worst thing someone could do is to look at their neighbor and be like, I want your field. Like, is that where sin starts for you? <laughs> it's, not, it's not the first thing that comes to my mind. But what's he doing? He's drawing them into a story. This is so often what's happening in the Bible, isn't it? It's a, a flip glance. It's just like, what are they talking about? What's he, what he's doing is he's reminding them of a story of a king who at night plots and in the morning steals someone's field. Anyone remember? Ahab. That's right. Well, Ahab, who knows anything about King Ahab? Ahab was one of the earliest kings in Israel in the northern kingdom. He was in the northern kingdom, right? Yeah, he's in the northern kingdom. And he was the archetype bad king in Israel. He was like the swear word king, like you're such an Ahab. Like that was a bad thing. Um, And Ahab uh, had a wife who's pretty famous as well. Anyone remember the wife's name? Jezebel. To this day, people don't call their daughters Jezebel. That's that's how bad this lady. What, uh, no offense if you're called Jezebel. It's a lo- beautiful name, and the Lord wants to redeem you. Uh, and no, your name, not you, and you, maybe. Oh dear. Um, okay. So, um, so Ahab was awful, and Ahab was looking out of his palace one day, and he saw this vineyard that was owned by a guy called. Naboth, very good. You guys, you're so biblically literate. Um, And and Ahab thought, hey, that's a good-looking vineyard. I know, such a normal guy. I want it. So he goes to Naboth and says, Naboth, give me your vineyard, and I'll give you a good price. And Naboth says, actually, I can't do that, because in the law of God, I'm forbidden from even selling you my inheritance, because my inheritance stays in my family for all of time. So your inheritance was what gives you any kind of ability to trade, any kind of ability to farm, any kind of ability to to exist, really, in the land of Israel and not be a beggar, if you think about it, because your inheritance, your land, your area is the way that you're going to grow things. It's the way that you're going to farm. It's the way that you're going to produce. It's everything. And so God put this law in the Old Testament saying, don't sell your land you're not allowed to buy someone's land and if you loan it for a while you have to give it back because when you take away someone's land you take away their power to get out of poverty you take away their dignity you take away their ability to function independently so this is much more than just i'm taking your field this is i'm taking everything that you have that means that you can get out of your situation of poverty does that make sense and so what you're not just doing is taking a piece of property, you're taking someone's power, you're taking their dignity, and you're taking any ability that they have. And so the, the king um, decides that the best way forward, um, as this guy refuses to sell him his land, is to murder him and confiscate it. It's a logical next step, isn't it? Um, So he arranges for this guy, Naboth, to get murdered, um, kills him, and then takes his land and thinks, hey, that was a good day's work. I've done pretty well today as king, as someone in power. And then the prophet Elijah comes to him and confronts him and says, King Ahab, you are a complete douchebag. Have you not murdered a man and taken his inheritance, seized his property, um, it says it, that it, there was no king like Ahab. It says like he's the archetype bad king. But what's the prophet Micah doing now? He's looking at those in power at that point in time and saying, Guys, <laughs> you might not realize it, but you are working from the playbook of Ahab. Power in this country at this point is abusing the poor, it's abusing the rights of the weak, and it's seizing what's not yours. So to the point that even in, in Micah chapter 6 verse 16, he even by name references Ahab. He says, you have, he's talking again to those in power. He says, you have observed the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house. In other words, the pattern of power has become the pattern of Ahab. But really it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Because that's not just how it worked then. That's actually how power basically always works, isn't it? It feels like we can't go a week without seeing in the news again people's abuse of their situations of power. Or in our workplaces, we can't go long without seeing people abuse the power that they have. It's not a danger here because I don't have any. <laughs> so you're okay. Um, but uh, it's, it's actually... Sort of just what happens whenever we're actually in power. Anyway, let's keep going through Micah's critique of, of the people in power um, in the country at Micah's time. Um, he says, oh. Yeah, we're good. Um, Lately, my people have risen up. This is uh, 2 verse 8 to 9. Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. So what he's saying here is those in power in the nation at this time Are abusing people, and who are they abusing? Why is it always the women and children? Does this drive anyone else crazy? It feels like it's been like nearly three thousand years since this was written, and who are still the people who get the most abused in our world today by those in positions of power? It's women and children. (laughs) Does this? It's like how have we not learned? We've been we've been going as human society for this long, and it's still the same, isn't it? We it's still the same. This is what power does. This is what unchecked power does. And so this is, uh, in in part, this book is a rebuke at some certain leaders, but it's also a rebuke at what happens when we get unchecked power into our hands, is we can't help it. We end up abusing. We end up holding on. We end up conniving. We end up hurting people. Um, and, uh, (laughs) And the people that we end up hurting are always those who we perceive to be the weakest those who cannot fight back, those who have less of a voice. Um, There's a guy who's an American writer and kind of thinker in the church at the moment called Michael Frost, um, who's great. And if you read any of his stuff... You should. He's got a blog. You should follow it. It's really, really good. Um, and he's talked recently uh, about all the, uh, the news articles that are coming out about people who've abused women, basically. Um, and he kind of looks at this list of names of like all these uh, people who we know, uh, you know, Trump's even boasted about it. But Bill Cosby, Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein, you know, the list just goes on and on and on, doesn't it? About people who in situations of power haven't particularly used it to abuse women. And this is what Michael Frost says about that. He says, while these assaults may have been sexual in nature, it seems that in every case they were exercises in the flagrant and unquestioned power afforded to these men. They thought they could act with impunity. They thought they could act with impunity. And when we think we can act with impunity, when we think no one's looking, something in us seizes it, doesn't it? Something in us seizes that kind of power. This is what happens when there is unchecked power. And so um, the prophet goes on. He says um, in three one to three, "Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, should you not know justice? You who hate good and love evil." And then notice the kind of the language that he puts on this. Notice how strongly he puts it. You tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones not mincing his words is he oh come on (laughs) who eat my people's flesh strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces who chop them up like meat for the pan like flesh for the pot (laughs) well i I mean that's not the interpretation i was going to go for um, someone needs to minister to Elaine at the end. It. Let's speak animals. It's the logical... Yes, that's what it's saying. Um, the, what's interesting here is we need prophets to do this, I think. We need prophets to be able to see situations for what they are and then put words on them that show them for what they are. Does that make sense? This is, there's something of the role in the prophet to be someone who has open eyes to have open eyes to what's going on in the world. And this is what we're called to today. See, so often in the church, it's easy, isn't it? Just just to think about what we need to do here, to think about what I need to think right, to think about um, how I can live a little bit more holy in my own life. And that's really important. But there's a prophetic role for the church in being those who highlight and, and show what abuses of power there are in the world and how things are not working as they should be, and then say it. And then put it into language and put it into poetry. Um, it's like, um, did anyone watch any of the stand-up to cancer stuff uh, over the last weekend? And you get um, there's there's some comedy and it's great. And then you get these stories, don't you? Um, that although most of us have probably known someone with cancer, Elaine gave a, a testimony just now, um, and uh, and you know for most of us, cancer isn't a totally unfamiliar thing. But when you see these stories being told of these families who've had their lives ripped apart, what does it do? It brings it to the fore for you, doesn't it? And it opens your eyes. Um, I was, uh, we caught just a tiny, tiny, weeny bit of the kind of Gogglebox thing while we were trying to go to bed the other night. Um, it takes us about four hours to get to sleep, to get to bed now. So there's a lot of time. Um, and um, uh, the people on Gogglebox were watching. If you don't watch Gogglebox, you should. It's very educational. Um, um, were watching the kind of testimonies, the testimonials on the stand-up to cancer stuff. And so they were watching this family talk about how their young son had cancer and then it got, went away a bit and then it came back and he died and then their wife got cancer and it was awful. And the people watching it, as they kind of saw the reality of what was going on come to life in these people's lives, responded so viscerally, to it. They were, they were crying and they were like, one of them said, it just makes you want to punch it in the face, doesn't it? That's the role of prophecy. That's what prophecy does. Prophecy isn't just about seeing into the future, though it is sometimes that. It's also about being able to see the present through the eyes of God, to see what makes him indignant, to see what's going on that shouldn't be going on, and then to put it in words, to put it in story, to put meat on it like this passage just did, um, and say and show people, man, this is not okay. Does that make sense? The prophets are those with open eyes to evil. But that's not all. They are also those with open mouths. Prophets are not just called to see, but to speak. And sometimes to speak boldly um, and to speak with courage. Um, He says um, in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, As as for me, is it the beginning of chapter 3? Oh no, chapter 3 verse 8 if you want to follow. As for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to... To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah's not content just to be one who sees what's going on. He wants to tell those in power that what they're doing is not okay. So he says, Hear this, you leaders of the house of Israel. And there comes to there comes the point in the life of the prophet where what they see has to come out, where what they see has to come out, where the message that they've had from God can't just stay in them any longer. Do you remember how Jeremiah put it? He, whenever Jeremiah talked judgment on the people, um, things went really badly for him in his life. And so after a while, he was like, do you know what? This is pretty rubbish. I'm going to try staying silent. And then he wrote this. Um, He says, um, If I say I will not mention him, he means God, or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am wary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. That is what a prophet sounds like. Someone who knows the truth and they cannot keep it inside themselves. They must speak. Um, (laughs) This is how one guy put it quite recently. Um, He said, it was painful for me several years ago. This is a guy who, who, um, well, he's got something to say. We're going to see what. It was painful for me several years ago when several friends were arrested. I said nothing. I didn't want to lose my job or my freedom. I worried about my family. I have made a different choice now. I've left my home, my family, and my job, and I am raising my voice to do otherwise would be to betray those who languish in prison. I can speak when so many cannot. I want you to know that my country has not always been as it is now. We deserve better. Any ideas who that was? That's what a prophet sounds like as someone who cannot stay silent anymore to the point that they will endanger themselves. This is um, Jamal Khashoggi. Is that how you say his name? Um, The guy who was murdered um, the other day in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. This is a guy who who for a while thought I'm going to try and stay silent and just preserve my own and then realised the injustice was too great and he had to speak. He had to speak even though it might cost him and in his case it cost him. It's this imperative. It doesn't matter what they do to me. I must speak. And the, the fa- for Micah and for Jamal Khashoggi, um, the people who he's speaking to don't want him to speak. Um, in, the, in Micah, it says in 2 verse 6, the people are saying to him, do not prophesy. Stop talking to us about this stuff. We don't want to hear him, but, they, he, but he must. He has to. Nigel mentioned uh, last week this guy. Does anyone remember what his name is? Oscar Romero, I did not know anything about this guy until Nigel mentioned him last week, which now seems like a crime, (laughs) who here hadn't heard of Oscar Romero? You should, my days, what a legend, this guy um, spoke, I don't even know which country he was in, which country? El Salvador, um, and he would—he spoke against the state. He was a, 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 a Catholic priest, and he spoke against the state for their violent uh, repression and killing of uh, non-violent protesters, in particular, in his country. And the government would just act in totally corrupt and power-hungry ways. Um, and he said, "Like this is what, something he said in one of his uh, broadcast sermons. He's speaking to the government. He says, in the name of God and in the name of this suffering people whose cries rise to heaven more loudly each day, I beg you, I implore you, I order you, in the name of God, stop the repression. That was on the 23rd of March in 1980. And he guesses what happened on the 24th of March, 1980. He was assassinated, leading mass at the altar. And uh, Nigel mentioned last week um, that that he was, um, what do you call it, saintized, canonized Canonized by the Catholic Church last week. Do you want to hear something awesome? Pope Francis walked into that ceremony last week to canonize this guy wearing the blood-stained belt of this murdered priest. Isn't that incredible? We need to thank God for our Pope. He's just so cool. Like, what a badass. Um, and quite right, too, is he's saying this, this is what it means to follow Jesus, to speak against oppression, to not just have open eyes, but to have open mouths. In fact, there's this compulsion on the church to be those who speak against injustice. Um, Martin Luther King put it like this. He said, he who passively accepts evil is as much involved in it as he who helps perpetuate it. (laughs) That that hurts me when I read it because it makes me think, huh, what do I just accept? What don't I speak against where actually the voice of Jesus would speak up? He who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. He said history will have to record that the greatest tragedy of this period, he's talking about the civil rights movement in the States, the greatest tragedy of this period of social transition was not the strident clamour of the bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. I was reading this week a little bit about the marches in Selma um, and um, how... There were there were there were plenty of Christians at the marches. There was the church was represented, but there were also a whole bunch of the church whose leaders said, "Don't go, it's dishonouring to the government. Don't go. We forbid you from going." And so the church is kind of present and absent. I think that's still true, isn't it? In issues where where we need to be speaking, where we need our voice to be heard, um, that the church is somewhat present and somewhat absent. Like we sort of want justice to prevail and we sort of want to preserve our own a little bit as well. makes sense? And that should hit us hard. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. By the way, we're using a lot of examples from people who were killed today. It's just, <laughs> it's how it goes if you look for profits. <laughs> they mainly end up dead. Um, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, said, said it like this. He said, Christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence. Now This is a guy who was a, uh, a vicar, priest, vicar, German Lutheran pastor during the rise of Nazism. And he spoke out against the rise of Nazism, um, which again a classic example of where the church was kind of present kind of absent lots of the church just went along with nazism which now just seems crazy doesn't it um, but this guy spoke against it. he said christianity stands or falls with its revolutionary protest against violence arbitrariness and pride of power and with its plea for the weak christians are doing too little to make those points clear rather than doing too much christendom adjusts itself far too easily to the worship of power When I was reading these things this week, I was thinking, as a church, is our voice raised? Is our voice raised? Are we speaking where we need to be speaking? Um, And because I genuinely don't know the answer to that question, I wrote an email um, to Amanda Jackson. Do you guys know Amanda Jackson? Legend. She used to be a part of this church. If you don't know her, again, there's a blog called Amanda Advocates, which you should look at and read. And she's awesome. She writes at the kind of intersection between biblical theology and justice issues in the world today. So I was like, if someone can tell me where I'm going wrong on this issue, she can. Like, so I wrote to her and I said, like, what should we be doing? I feel like I read this stuff and I'm like, man, I want to make a stand against justice, and then I have absolutely no idea what to do or where to start or what issues of injustice even there are, what I'm being hidden from, what I'm hiding myself from. So I said, like, sock it to me, tell me. Um, what, I didn't use that phrase. Um, but she knew what I meant. Um, and she wrote back, and she kind of, actually, she wrote me a long email back, um, which was very kind of her. Um, and she said, I think there are two main issues in the world today that the church needs to be more vocal on, um, particularly in the West. One is we've done too little Um, to uphold and to uh, kind of um, advocate for the rights of refugees and this alien and the stranger. We're too afraid. And so the church sits back and allows people uh, to kind of, to not have that access. And she said, we need to do more for refugees. What did she say? I've got it here. Um, She said, we have, oh yeah. She said, uh, some churches are doing some things, but she said this phrase. She said, we have not been a prophetic voice. We have not been a prophetic voice for the rights of refugees and the alien and the orphan. Oh. and the second issue uh, was the kind of the increasing gap between the rich and the poor, and those with power and those without, and the increasing amount that those who are rich get to decide everything and run the world, basically. Which I don't know anything about, um, so I'll leave someone else to talk about that. Um, so that will be good. But man there's this kind of sense in which, oh yeah, we need to be standing up, we need to be advocating, we need to be doing something. We need to be those with open mouths. But the third thing we need to be, because it's really easy, isn't it, to feel like you're on kind of a righteous rant. I don't know if you guys have ever got into a righteous rant scenario on Facebook or on YouTube comments or something like that. It's super fun. And, and you can basically be self-righteous about anything and take people down. And there's enough idiots on Facebook who will respond to you and make you feel more self-righteous and better about yourself. Then you can just kind of get on and get on and get on. And, and eventually it becomes this kind of holy rant um, against everyone and against everything um, where you know you're right. But here's the thing. Prophets aren't just called to be people with open eyes and open mouths. They're also called to be those with open hearts we cannot prophesy against something. I I think this is true. I might be overstating it, but I think it's true that you cannot prophesy against something that you do not love. And I think that's, I don't think that's overstating it. Um, In Micah, um, in chapter one, verse eight, he said, because of this, he's prophesying against the people. He said, because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I'm not going to do that. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. I might do that. Um, And he's saying, actually, I'm prophesying against these people, but it affects me. The judgment that I prophesy to this institution is not one that I want to see take place. See, sometimes we can prophesy against people. I can go on a rant against Trump. And really what I want to see is him taken down. That's not the prophetic. Prophetic. The prophetic is, oh my gosh, I'm so moved by the indignance of God over a situation. But also, I I don't want to see this happen to you. I want to see you restored. I want to see you find life. I want this to go well. Does that make sense? that we're called to be those with open hearts. Um, I mentioned last time I was speaking, I think, the prophet Ezekiel. Um, I spent a lot of time um, reading Ezekiel during my sabbatical. And one thing I was really struck by, that I think is true in all the prophets in the scriptures, but particularly it struck me in Ezekiel, is whenever he prophesies against someone or against the sphere of society, what he will next do is lament over that same thing. Do you remember this? So he'll do a prophecy against Egypt and he'll be like, man, Egypt are awful, blah, 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 gonna take you down, blah, blah blah. And then he'll be like, I'm gonna now say a lament over Egypt. And it becomes obvious, oh my gosh, this guy loves Egypt. He he didn't prophesy because he hated them or because he wants them to die. He prophesied because he wants them to find life. He prophesied because he believes that there's actually a hope for this place. Um, and he'll do he'll do that over and over again a prophecy against Tyre a lament for Tyre a prophecy against Pharaoh a lament for Pharaoh over and over again you cannot prophesy against something that you do not love it's like Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem and he says oh Jerusalem and he pronounces these woes over the city of blood the city that murdered the prophets bloody blah, blah, blah and and he but his heart is so clearly obvious I want to restore you Jerusalem I want to restore you um, um, Henry Nouwen um, was a Dutch guy um, who was just awesome as well. You should read Henry Nouwen if you haven't. I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. Um, I don't think anyone knows how to say Dutch right. So I'm just going to assume that's fine. Um, and he looked like this. He was a very good looking man. And um, he said this. We are trying to do a very difficult thing. We are trying to say no to war. No to indiscriminate killing of men, women, and children. No to the horrendous destruction of villages, cities, and fertile lands. In short, no to all the evil powers that sow death instead of life. You're asking, why is that a difficult thing? Why is this such a difficult task, he goes on to say? Because we want to say no in such a way that the possibility of peace becomes visible in our words, hands, and eyes. When our words are only angry curses, our hands only clenched fists, and our eyes filled with hostile gazes, then we are trying to end a war with a war. And we add narrow-mindedness to narrow-mindedness, hostility to hostility, fear to fear, and violence to violence. Therefore, we are called today to confess that the evil we're protesting against is alive in our own selves, to repent with contrite hearts for the sins of the world, to witness to the possibility and desirability of peace in the midst of a war-ridden society, to show, this is where it gets really amazing, to show a deep compassion not only for our friends but also for those we have called our enemies and to work with hope for the liberation that frees both the oppressor and the oppressed, that frees both the oppressor and the oppressed from the tyrannical automation of violence. What a lad. That's the kingdom. That's what a prophet looks like in the kingdom of God. One with open hearts. One that doesn't just look, down, look to take people down, but looks for... Uh, oh, gosh. Sorry, this stands being my, being my um, defeat today. Yes, yes. Okay, open eyes, open mouth, open hearts. That's what a prophet looks like. But just before we land, we're going to look at um, a little bit of where Micah points to. Um, When he's thinking about power, what does he see as the alternative? And he paints a beautiful alternative, doesn't he? Um, In chapter 2, John read earlier, he said this (laughs) I will surely gather all of you, O Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. One who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass before them, the Lord at their head. Isn't that a cool image? What it's an image of is of a flock and a shepherd. Now that's significant because nearly always in the Bible, the image of a sheep and a shepherd is an image of leadership. So he's saying, here's what power is going to look like when the Lord has his way, when the Lord is running the ship, when the kingdom is his. I'm going to gather you and I'm going to bring you together like a sheep in its pen. But here's the difference. Where at the moment power uses the sheep to get his own way, this kind of power, this ruler is going to come and not use the sheep for his own benefit, but for the sheep this is power this is not power over this is power for so when the kingdom of god is established um, he's going to, it says he's going to break open, one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. This isn't a power that restricts people, it's a power that releases them. Do you see that? This isn't a power that wants to encage the sheep, but a power that wants to liberate them and set them free. Um, this is the kind of power that God is into. Their king will pass before them. This isn't a power that sends the sheep out and says, good luck, fend for yourselves. It's the kind of power that goes ahead of them and leads the way and marches for them to to make sure they're safe, the Lord at their head. Wouldn't it be great to see that kind of power? Wouldn't it have been awesome if God had sent a king who sounded a little bit like that? A little bit like power for, not power over. A king that loved the weak and the marginalized, didn't use them for himself. A king that instead of oppressing and abusing the rights of women, gives dignity and value and shows, <laughs> the, shows the incredible value of every woman he ever meets. And far from like abusing the rights of kids, says, let the little children come to me. Wouldn't it be awesome if God had sent a king like that, huh? <laughs> a king, <laughs> a shepherd, who rather than <laughs> laying the sheep down for his life, lays down his life for the sheep. And so it's awesome, isn't it? Because we we know what that power looks like. And true power is modeled in in Jesus. That's what power looks like. Any other kind of power you see in the world, that we see in the world, isn't real power. It's just fake, it's pretend, it's phony. Real power is laying your life down for the sheep Real power is this different kind of king who's going to come, who's still so different from all the power structures that we see at work in the world today. Tom Wright put it like this. He said, this is the explosive news of a different empire, a different emperor, but actually a different kind of emperor, a different kind of emperor. And so in Jesus, what we see is this, this kind of great, beautiful both and, because on the one hand, he fulfills the role of the prophet. He speaks up for the rights of the oppressed and to the point that he really, really, really gets up the noses of those in power at his time. To the point that they do what they do to all the prophets <laughs> and kill him. And so in that sense, he fulfills the role of prophet. But here's the, also the beautiful thing, is in doing so, he brings about a different kind of way of doing power and a different kind of way of being, um, of being one who has power for people. Um, to the point that when he dies on the cross, the centurion, do you remember this story? The centurion, there's a, looking on the Jesus that he's just crucified. Now for the centurion, his whole theology, his whole mindset will have been that God is for those in power because being in power means God's blessed you, right? So basically, those in power act with impunity because the gods are with them. They have victory in battle. That means the gods are with you. And yet something about the way Jesus dies means the centurion looks at Jesus and says, that's the son of God. That's what God looks like. Not this, not the one who seems to be in victory over it actually, in dying, Jesus undermined the death that he was committed to. Does that make sense? Good, Um, because we're out of time. (laughs) And so our whole aim is to be those who see the establishment of the kingdom of this new kind of emperor, who have open hearts, open eyes, open mouths, but also who can be those who actually see the new way that Jesus wields power opened up in the world in a new way today, in the church, in our families, in your workplaces. You get to be a part of seeing this new way of doing power um, happen. Uh, One of the things that Amanda Jackson said was um, maybe it would be worth us all thinking this week and praying and saying, Lord Jesus, is there is there something you need me to commit to, something you want me to be a prophetic voice in, some sphere of my life? Where I can commit to being a voice for the voiceless, a voice for the weak, and seeing uh, this new kingdom uh, coming. Henry Nowen, uh, just I'm just going to end with this. Henry Nowen um, was at the marches in Selma in 1965, and um, which is why, part of the reason why I was reading about it this week. Um, and he was a white, um, a white priest. But who joined in the march along with um, the African Americans? Um, and he encountered just a tiny taste of the kind of hatred that people looked at them with. It was the way he writes it, it's so powerful. Like he kind of enters into a little bit, understanding, oh my gosh, this is what people talk about when they say, <laughs> when they talk about oppression and injustice. And he met a guy on the march. Um, who'd been on the march with an old guy and the old guy said to this guy who was called Roland and then Roland told Henry he said there's three things we're called to do we're called to risk in faith decide in hope and suffer the consequences in love to find something to get behind and then risk in faith we risk in faith because the worst they can do to us is what they did to Jesus <laughs> and there was a resurrection We decide in hope because we can see the option of a better future where power looks like Jesus, where the poor get spoken for and where the weak are not marginalized and oppressed and kept down. So we're in hope and we suffer the consequences in love. We bear the cost of the choices that we make to see this better future come about. Man, that was a heavy going journey, wasn't it? (laughs) Why don't we spend a moment and ask the Lord uh, to highlight something maybe in our lives? And maybe it won't come just now. Um, I'd much rather rather than just kind of make a snap decision. Hey, I'm going to be all about this. Just let's be in it for a few days and ask the Lord what He wants to say. But let's ask the Holy Spirit just to come now and to give us open eyes, open hearts, and the gift of open mouths. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you're not a God who stays silent when power is abused. We're so grateful that there's this rebuke in this passage and that you promise to take down systems that oppress and hold people down. And so, in that sense, Lord, we thank you for your judgment. Lord, I want to welcome that Holy Spirit into my heart and say Holy Spirit would you point to the areas in my life where I've been complicit and where I've had my eyes closed or my heart closed or my mouth closed and Lord would you lead me past that and through that into wholeness thank you for your grace Lord thank you for your grace on my life And for how you even bore the, the injustice that I perpetrate. And Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit as well to do a work in our hearts. And to show us how you see things. To give us a sense of your vision for the world. And Lord, would you make, would you make our church, but would you make your church, the global church, a prophetic church? A church that that sees what's going on. A church that speaks against it, that that bears the consequences. A church that is not ever a a condemning church, but that is a rebuking church, that's not an afraid church. So Lord, would you pour out your spirit of prophecy on us? Lord, we pray for all of us here today. Um, and maybe there's there's some here and you've got actually, there's something that you've been bugging them with for a while and today is like a, hey, I know that's what I need to rise up on. We pray that uh, for those people, you give them great courage and great strength and great wisdom and great love. And Lord, for those of us who are a bit bit more clueless <laughs> and you kind of hear something like this and are like, well, I don't I don't really know what to do with it pray that you guide us and keep us attentive to your voice so that wherever we see um, the voiceless and the weak and the broken, we speak for them. Spirit of Jesus, we welcome you.
0: I just wonder if there's people here right now who might be in that situation where they're speaking out. They might be speaking out against systems, regimes, uh, but it might even be more home-based. It might be speaking out against about things within your own family or relationships at work. Um, I don't know. If there's anybody who, who feels that's them... I just wondered if you'd like to stand and we'll stand with you in prayer. Yeah. Yes, Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the passion that you have given to Nigel for the work that he does. We thank you for the way that you're leading him to speak out for the voiceless. And we pray your protection, that you will protect him from above and below, from in front and behind. We pray that you would empower him. We pray that you will give him the words to speak and the actions to do. We pray, Father, that you would open ways where there are no ways. And we thank you, we thank you that he stands for justice and he stands for the lost and the broken. And I thank you for the amazing work he's doing. And we pray your rich blessing upon him. And we pray, Lord, that you will continue to strengthen him and guide him in all that he does. And we stand with him in prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just reach out our hands to those who are standing. And Father, we say thank you we say thank you that nothing is hidden from you we thank you that you see all things we thank you that yes you give us eyes to see you give us mouths to speak and you give us hearts to feel and we pray lord that you will help each of our brothers and sisters here that you will bless them that you will minister to them that you will give them all the wisdom and discernment that they need and we stand with them in prayer in jesus name amen amen okay our time is done but i would just like to read a blessing to you yeah just to finish with a blessing so may the peace of the lord christ go with you wherever he may send you May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he once again, oh, sorry, (laughs) bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.